You're listening to a sermon from Red Door Church in Melbourne. For more information, go to reddoorchurch.com.au. Christians find the doctrine of the Trinity, the fact that God is one and yet seen very clearly as Father, Son and Holy Spirit, is difficult to understand and even harder to explain. The idea is plainly offensive to Muslims. So why do we hold such a difficult and complex doctrine, a problematic belief? Well, mainly because it's true to what Jesus taught and who he is. It's a biblical truth in the sense, not that the word is used, the word of the Trinity, but it summarizes and expresses what the Bible teaches and testifies about its importance. As I was preparing for the sermon today, I thought I'd print out John chapter 14, verses, uh, sorry, 14 to 17, and I'd highlight the verses in that section that kind of resonated with the truth that God is Father, Son and Holy Spirit, one God. Well, I soon found that actually it would have been easier to highlight the verses that didn't particularly or specifically express that truth. There was yellow highlighter all over the text. In Islam, Torwid is the central truth that the Qur'an teaches that it is to be totally rejected that anyone or anything can be associated with Allah in his oneness. Associating others with God is known as shirk. And it's the antithesis of Tawid. Uh, this is so fundamental to Islamic thought. There can be no partner to Allah. His total oneness um, is seen as he is absolutely distinct from creation. As such, we are not created in the image of God. Yet, at the same time, because God is completely different from his creation, the Muslim believes he can never know God, what he is truly like in himself. We shouldn't even speculate about his inner nature. Well, as it works out, this week I spoke with three people who have come from Muslim-majority places where the oneness of God is so important. Two of those that I spoke with were converts to Christianity and the other grew up as a Christian in a Muslim-majority nation. I asked, is there anything you find particularly appealing about the doctrine of the Trinity? One said, the personhood of God. 
and that God in himself was loving before creation. If God is one alone, how can love be expressed before creation? Another went on to say, I love the idea of the Trinity because of the divinity of Christ. Jesus is God. And so that only makes sense when you believe in the Trinity. Another person said to me, a God who is completely fathomable is actually no longer God. It is a difficult doctrine to understand, but we shouldn't think that God was just simple to understand. Um, he went on to say, the Islamic religion doesn't allow for much diversity because of the total oneness of their God. One of the books that has sold many, many copies in recent years is a book by Nabil Qureshi, Seeking Allah and Finding Jesus. And in the book, Qureshi talks about how he struggles to understand um, who God is. And in the end, he finds the only explanation that makes sense for him is to believe that Jesus is God and that God is a trinity. And so he surrenders his life to Jesus. Um, in recent years, I've been teaching theology to uh, refugee background students at Ridley College. Um, it's been a great joy. And many of those that I teach come from Africa or the Middle East, and they come from a, a, a context where there's kind of fault lines between Christianity and Islam. And in teaching theology, when we were teaching about the Trinity, my students never needed to be convinced of the importance of the doctrine. They knew this was significant. But one exercise that we would, uh, we would play in class is what we call, if not, then what? If not, then what? If God is not a Trinity, what? What important Christian understandings would fall over? Here are some examples. If Jesus is not God, then God sent someone else to die for our sins. Is that a loving God? If Jesus is not God, then Jesus couldn't reveal God. We could not really know God. We would, God would remain an almost total mystery. If God is not the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, then we would need to reject the central teaching of the whole New Testament. 
If the Holy Spirit is not God, then we don't have an ongoing relationship and fellowship with God. And more problematic, we have a spirit which is not God dwelling within us. If Father, Son and Spirit are all God but there's no Trinity, then really we're no longer monotheistic. We believe in three gods. This would be totally counter to what is taught in the Bible. If there's no Trinity, then there was no loving God before creation. God was not a lonely God who needs the creation as an object for his love. As Trinity, God is fulfilled in himself and doesn't need to create in order to, or to redeem. He doesn't need to do those things. He is loving in himself. But out of his love, he chooses to do that. Creation and redemption are acts of sheer grace, expressions of God as free, eternal love. Uh, some years ago, I attended uh, an address by Miroslav Volf, who's a professor of theology at Yale. Uh, you may be able to see his picture on the screen. He said that the two most difficult doctrines in Christianity are the doctrine of the Trinity and the doctrine of the two natures of Christ, being fully God and fully human. He said these are the most difficult doctrines, but at the same time they're the most delicious. Well, I love that phrase. Um, the truth of God as Trinity is a delicious doctrine. Sometimes thinking about it makes my head hurt, but I can't see that it could be any other way. In the New Testament, one of the things that we should be aware of is that Christians in the New Testament and writers of the New Testament and Jesus himself was actually speaking into a very monotheistic culture. For Jews, the oneness of God was absolutely central. The Shema that they were told to recite, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one was a creedal statement for all Jews. And so Jesus takes his disciples and others and us as we read the Bible further into the understanding that, yes, God is one, but that he is God. When Thomas, the second time Jesus appears to his disciples, uh, is spoken to, he confesses Jesus to be my Lord and my God. Well, I'm going to look with you through John chapter 14, 8 to 20, and I just want to highlight very briefly uh, those passages which resonate fully with this truth.
Have a look at uh, John 14, um, verses 9 and 10. Um, I've given you the whole verse here, but just look at uh, the second part of verse 9. The one who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Uh, the words I speak to you do not speak on my own. The Father who lives in me does his works. In verse 11, believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Or in verse 12, truly I tell you that the one who believes in me will also do the works that I do and he will do even greater works than these because I'm going to the Father. Verse 13, whatever you ask in my name, I will do it so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. Verse 15, if you love me, you'll keep my commands and I will ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever. I, I spoke uh, last week about the other counsellor. Uh, another one just the same, not another one that's different. Uh, like another uh, flat white coffee in the coffee shop. Another one the same. And I'll ask the Father and he will give you another counsellor to be with you forever. He is the spirit of truth. The world is unable to receive him because it doesn't see him or know him. But you do know him because he remains with you and will be in you. And verse 18. I will not leave you as orphans. I'm coming to you. In a little while the world will no longer see me, but you will see me because I live, you will live also. On that day you will know that I am in my Father and you are in me and I am in you. Can you see how these verses just uh, uh, expand and ripple out and resound with the truth? The God is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Well, it's my prayer in talking to you about the Trinity today that you will be encouraged to share and defend this doctrine. It's not a problematic belief for Christians. It's a fundamental of our faith. It's absolutely crucial for believing in the reality of who Jesus is. It's a wonderful doctrine. Like Miroslav Volf, yes, not always easy to get your head around, but delicious. Well, what am I encouraging you to do? I want you this week to reflect on the doctrine of the Trinity. To think about, to seek to think about how you can defend that great doctrine. 
And would you pray for the opportunity to talk with others about this delicious truth? Uh, the church struggled to completely comprehend this idea and one of the ways that they, in the end, um, came to crystallise Christian thinking about who God is is expressed in the creeds of the church. One of the great creeds that emerged from a number of councils, the Council of Nicaea primarily, um, is what we use today and call the Nicene Creed. Just as a final little story, um, the character from Christian history who came to actually represent the one that we call Father Christmas, that is Saint Nicholas, was a keen Trinitarian. And he got so fired up about this doctrine that actually he punched an Aryan believer on the nose. It's not quite consistent with our image of uh, Father Christmas, but, uh, and I'm not commending that as an action, but it does show how important this doctrine was to early believers, to the church throughout the ages, and to us today. I'm going to finish today by praying a traditional prayer, a collect for Trinity Sunday. Almighty and everlasting God, you have given to us, your servants, grace by the confession of a true faith to acknowledge the glory of the eternal Trinity and in the power of the divine majesty to worship the unity Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, keep us steadfast in this faith and evermore defend us from all adversities for you live and reign one God forever and ever. Amen.